EU Confidential will get started right after this message. Today's episode is presented by Eni. As a global energy company, Eni was an early believer in Europe, opening its first office in Brussels in 1960. Today, it's supporting the EU's common vision of a carbon-neutral Europe by 2050. The European Union has a lot of huge benefits. You know, if you think about a world where the biggest currency of power is connections, Europe is more connected than almost anywhere else. That both potentially makes it more powerful, but also makes it more vulnerable. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard Mark Leonard, the head of the European Council on Foreign Relations. Later in the podcast, he'll tell us about his new book, The Age of Unpeace, and about how Europe is doing in an era which is increasingly defined by global connections. Meanwhile, here in Brussels and across Europe, eyes and ears are increasingly turning to Germany, where the general election that will end the Angela Merkel era is just over two weeks away. The campaign has turned out to be surprisingly interesting and exciting, and it's not over yet. In the last few weeks, the centre-left Social Democrats, the SPD, who were third in the polls not so long ago, have surged to the front of the pack, establishing a clear lead over Merkel's Conservative camp. A lot of the SPD's success seems to be down to its candidate for Chancellor, Finance Minister Olaf Scholz, who's hardly a superstar, but is seen as solid, competent and dependable. Meanwhile, the Conservatives have been plunging to historic lows, as many voters doubt their candidate, Armin Laschet, is up to the job. All of this led to an unusually blunt and feisty intervention from Angela Merkel herself. She used her final appearance in the German parliament before the election to warn Germans that Schultz could form a left-wing government with the Greens and the left party, Die Linke. Entweder eine Regierung, die mit SPD und Grünen die Unterstützung der Linkspartei in Kauf nimmt, zumindest sie nicht ausschließt, Let's dive deeper into all of that now with a very special podcast panel. Warm welcome to Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, all. And here in Brussels, the two new authors of our Brussels playbook, the flagship morning newsletter of Political Europe, Jakob Hankavella. Hi, Jakob. Hello. A familiar voice to our uh, podcast listeners, as you've been on uh, the show a few times over the years. And brand new to Political and to the podcast, uh, your co-author, Suzanne Lynch. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, great to be here. Great to have you. And perhaps you'd like to start by just introducing, I feel like I've been doing, Suzanne and I have been going around doing this thing where I'm like your, I'm almost like your MC. I ask you then to introduce yourself to various groups of people. So maybe one last time, Suzanne, if you'd like to introduce yourself to our podcast listeners, just to tell us a little bit about what you were doing before you came to Politico, how you got here. Yeah, Andrew, I have just arrived back to Brussels last week uh, to start this new position with Politico. Really excited to be working with Jacob on the playbook each day. Between 2013 and just the beginning of 2017, I was based here in Brussels for the Irish Times as the European correspondent. And, you know, when I remember when I arrived in early 2013, it was a lot of financial news. The Eurozone crisis was still pretty much in full swing. A few countries still in a bailout. And I remember endless Greek summits. 
Uh, and then the refugee crisis uh, happened, you know, around 2015. And then towards the end of my time here, the Brexit vote happened. Then I moved to Washington. So for the past four and a half years, I've been the Washington correspondent for the Irish Times, based in Washington, but traveling quite extensively around the US. And like every other journalist based in Washington, I was kind of covering nonstop the dramatic events of the Trump presidency. So it was it was quite a ride uh, being there, you know, in the White House on Capitol Hill, witnessing those tumultuous years of the Trump presidency and uh, the first six months or so of Biden, too. Mm. And how interested was, you know, uh, Washington during the Trump era, if you like, in Europe? You as a European correspondent, I've also uh, worked in Washington as a European are people, were they interested in the time that you'd spent in Brussels? You know, how much attention or political focus was there on Europe then? And, and has it changed in the early days of the Biden administration? Well, I think there was a lot of awareness in the United States that Trump was a president who was elected on the promise to withdraw America from the world stage in many ways. He made no bones about his views on the EU and that he supported Brexit, for example. So in the context of Trump, I think everyone was quite aware that he was kind of this anti-internationalist and much more nativist president. In saying that, I think the reality is that in the United States, there's a limited knowledge of what's happening at the European Union level. Um, and I think that is a problem in terms of communications for the EU itself. I mean, there's the age-old uh, comment, I think, by Henry Kissinger saying, who do you call when you call Europe? Obviously, we may all have this conversation now in the next few months with the end of the Merkel era, but that was very much definitely the case. Yes, you know, leaders, I, for example, I was at the White House for Macron's first visit. It was a huge event at the White House, lots of pomp and ceremony. I remember being out on the on the lawn at the White House for that. And so people do know the individual leaders, but when it comes to, you know, the leader of the commission, the council, the parliament, I think, unfortunately, even people working, you know, in Washington who are informed about politics, I think there is a limited knowledge of what the EU actually does. Yeah, I think sometimes they struggle to get their heads around, you know, what exactly is this person? Which one is the president of Europe is the kind of perennial question. So let's bring in, in Jakob. Even though you've been on the podcast before, perhaps you want to just introduce yourself briefly to our listeners and explain how, how you got here, how you got to be the playbook author. Right. So I've been on the podcast a few times, but for those don't know me. I uh, was a trade reporter with Politico for five years. Actually, started covering agriculture, which was very useful also for trade. Then uh, a lot of trade during the trade war years with Trump. Then I saw sort of the start of the tensions with China. Um, and you're a bit of a Brussels baby, I was going to say. Yeah. Right? In fact, I think you are literally a Brussels baby, aren't you? Like Ursula von der Leyen. I am, I am. I was born here, but I didn't grow up here. So for me, Brussels was this abstract concept. Yeah, but so you're almost a kind of perfect European product, right? You told the story <laughs> on the first day of, I don't know how much you want to go into your, your background, right? But uh, but very, very European background, yeah? Yeah, yeah. With a Spanish mother, German father, uh, born in Brussels, but I actually grew up in Germany. But went to a French school there, so mm. it's, it's a good mix. And did you say your did your teacher was it your primary school teacher who told you you had to choose an identity? Yes, yeah, yeah, she did. She told me and my parents that we'd have to choose one because otherwise I'm, I was going to go mad or schizophrenic. 
I'm going to work on that to make sure all all identity issues are resolved. Keep an eye on that. Just keep an eye on it. Uh, There we go. Didn't go bad. Just ended up as a journalist. (laughs) Exactly. Listen, we'll get into the German election, but let's take a little kind of uh, diversion over to Paris because Reem, the two of the main candidates have found time in the middle of the campaign to go to Paris. So who's, who's been going to see Emmanuel Macron and what do the French make of these visits? So yes, as you're saying, we have two of the main candidates who are kind of perhaps making a pilgrimage to Paris, maybe to go see the person who at least wants to be the leader of Europe after Merkel sort of steps away. SPD candidate for Chancellor uh, Olaf Scholz was here uh, in Paris on Monday meeting with uh, Emmanuel Macron. Uh, and today, Wednesday, the CDU candidate Armin Lachette uh, is uh, meeting with Macron as well. The Elysee is being a little coy about what uh, they're going to discuss and what Emmanuel Macron thinks of either candidates. Uh, they've also gone a step further and made sure to explain that the green candidate for chancellor uh, just didn't request a meeting, which is why she isn't coming here this week. And reminding us that, of course, Emmanuel Macron met with her on the sidelines of the Munich Security Conference the last time it was held in person, which was uh, February 2020, right before we all went into our COVID lockdowns. Which is a good point, right? That the Greens started their campaign being the sort of most pro-European party, very strong foreign policy focus on China, the US pro-EU army. And now suddenly that's totally disappeared from their campaign in the last weeks. And because their positions have have collapsed a little. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's just going to be interesting indeed if at the end of the day she decides she does want to come to Paris and meet Emmanuel Macron. Let's also remember that when Macron was running for president, he too went to Germany. Uh, so this is not unusual. Of course, Paris is trying to be as coy as possible and as even distant as possible towards all of these sort of keeping an even distance from all of these candidates to make sure that they're not perceived as playing favourites. Mm, interesting. I mean, this is it is um, slightly surprising to me that they would make these visits kind of quite late in the campaign and when politicians will normally tell you every vote counts and, you know, you want to be campaigning at home. Um, What's interesting to me is, and I wonder if, Jakob, you could help us out with this, is, you know, Emmanuel Macron doesn't strike me as a, a leader who is particularly popular in Germany. What is the added value for these two candidates to be seen at this point with Emmanuel Macron? I think actually a big part of the campaign of, of Scholz's success has been to be able to present himself as the incumbent. He is a vice chancellor. He, he has more government experience at the federal level. And so he's presented himself as almost a natural successor to Merkel. And part of that is also having good relations with France. And so that role sort of, look, I'm a statesman. I visit Macron and I'm hosted in the Elysee and he knows me. We've known each other for years. That can help him in the last days or so he might think. And then Laschet probably had to, had to play the same game. Thought I'd better go yeah. too. Yeah. What I was struck by is this morning, uh, Armin Laschet, so we're recording this on Wednesday, published this uh, article uh, in uh, Handelsblatt, uh, sort of explaining his foreign policy approach. And, uh, you know, he lays out a vision that is very, very close to Emmanuel Macron's, talking about the need to put security at the center of Europe, of EU foreign policy, talking about the need for Germany and France to put in place sort of a security 
union. It was interesting for me to also look at the SPD's um, foreign policy program, which is actually very short. So I'm just finding it interesting. What I'm trying to also understand from the French perspective is how they perceive these two things. We know that, for example, the SPD foreign minister, Heiko Maas, has been one of the more outspoken, I think, German politicians when it comes to the need for strategic autonomy. Uh, so I just really wonder if Schultz kind of was on that same path as well when he saw Macron uh, earlier this week. Yeah, maybe Jacob, that brings us, Jacob and Suzanne actually just brings us to that question of what are the questions do you think that are most preoccupying people in Brussels about the German election? What are they wondering about with regards to the outcome? Of course, the short answer is it depends who you talk to, right? Different people are going to have very different interests and, and expectations. But are there any kind of dominant themes? Is there anything that Jacob and Suzanne, just as you go about your job, that people are mentioning with regard to the German election, or particularly you, uh, Jacob, with your German background, asking you to kind of sure. explain yeah. what's going on? I mean, of course, is what you say it depends a lot on who you talk to. But that said, one recurrent theme, I think, is what does this mean for the power relations between France and Germany at the EU level? And everybody's preliminary conclusion seems to be that this is going to boost France, especially as a, you know, they're ready to take over the council presidency, whereas in Germany, you're going to have a leader with, with much less power initially than Merkel had after 16 years in government. That's also, it's not going to be as well known. So the main theme seems to be, this is going to boost France's role at the EU level. Yeah, I, I, Suzanne, yeah it's just kind hearing? of interesting. This is kind of more like an anecdote. Um, at a briefing this week, we're talking about this finance minister's meeting later this week in Slovenia. And one of the questions came up uh, at a briefing was about fiscal reform. And, you know, is there any point in having a conversation about fiscal reform for the German election? And, you know, the official was kind of saying, well, look, there are elections in every country and we can't just put things on pause. But it made me think that if for the next few months, I think everything is going to be seen through this film through this prism of the German election. Um, so I think, is it is it going to be the case that it maybe pauses developments? Are people going to be more hesitant about making policy mm. decisions, whether it's security, whether it's finance, whatever that, that's going to be interesting to look at. And then the other thing, of course, is that everyone's wondering the implications for France. We've got an election there next year. So I'm wondering, are we all going to be in kind of wait and see mode and how that's going to mm. impact the day-to-day -day running of the European Union? Yeah, I mean, speaking as, you know, just remembering, the, you know, a few years back when we had a, a similar dynamic, it was the French election followed by the German election in that case. And uh, the longer, particularly the longer there's a uncertainty, so the longer it takes to form a coalition. And then, then you get into the pre-election phase in France where Emmanuel Macron will certainly want to highlight and move forward on some EU issues, but there's some he will be wanting to, you know, kick into touch and not talk about at all. I do not expect him, for example, to be championing the cause of European enlargement during that campaign. So, you know, it does mean we're, we're into a sort of year long sort of, it could be a year long period, right, Reem, where, where we're just in this very strange kind of post and pre-election period. Transition limbo, for sure. Transition limbo. Well, it should give us uh, plenty to talk about in the months ahead. So, Jakob, Suzanne, Reem, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. 
If you're interested in the German election, we have a brand new free daily email newsletter for you, Germany Election Playbook. It comes out every day at 5pm Central European time. It's a snappy mix of news and analysis and even a bit of humour, featuring our own Florian Eder and Matt Karnichnik and our teams in Berlin, Brussels and beyond. If you'd like to give it a try, we'll include a link to it in the show notes. Now, right after this short break, we'll get to that conversation with Mark Leonard, the founder and director of the European Council on Foreign Relations. Stay with us. A message from Eni. In the productive countryside near Milan, six cube-shaped buildings surrounded by solar panels and green fields host one of the most powerful industrial supercomputers in the world. HPC5, Eni's main supercomputer, is essential in developing the clean technologies needed to decarbonize our economy. HPC5 helps to develop inertial C-wave energy converter, ISWEC, a system that converts the energy of ocean waves into electricity. HPC5 also runs simulation models for research on magnetic confinement fusion, the development of superconducting magnets, and the study of plasmas. Technology and innovation will play a key role in making Europe carbon neutral by 2050. Only investing in a wide range of technologies will effectively enable the achievement of net zero emissions. Globalization has been a boon for many people, but it has of course created losers as well as winners, and it's also thrown up new geopolitical challenges and even conflicts as countries become more interconnected. In his new book, The Age of Unpeace, How Connectivity Causes Conflict, our next guest, Mark Leonard, tries to address these challenges and shed light on how major powers like China, the United States and the European Union are grappling with them. He spoke earlier this week with our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. We were chatting as you were signing on here to the Zoom um, that you're actually from Brussels or grew up in Brussels anyways. Yes, well, I moved to Brussels when I was five because my dad was the economist bureau chief um, in Brussels. And my mum then got a job at the Université Libre de Bruxelles. And my parents stayed in Brussels for 30 years. I was there for, for 12 years, did all of my schooling at the European School in Brussels uh, in Uccle. So it's a, it's a second home to me. Absolutely. Well, maybe that's a good segue then into the book, which is about connectivity and the sort of bringing together of worlds. And maybe you could start by explaining to our listeners what exactly you mean by unpeace. Well, what we have grown up with is the, an idea of, of war and peace as the kind of drivers of human history. And wars are things which happen between governments. You declare a war. It's fought by people in uniform. And then when they end, you have a peace treaty. And peace is what happens the rest of the time. But it's decades since any European or Western people have been involved in any wars like that. And in fact, very few people get killed in any kind of organized conflict at the moment, less than 100,000 people a year. And that's seen as one of the great advances of civilization, that we live in a world without these sorts of wars. But at the same time, every year, hundreds of millions of people are hurt by conflict between different countries. And these are things which are happening below the radar. And therefore, we don't call them war because they are cyber attacks, costs of sanctions. They are people interfering in each other's elections. That's why I 
call the era that we're in the age of unpeace because it's not war, but it's not peace either. When I read the word connectivity initially, it conjures up the idea exactly as you said of cyber or some form of internet or online world. But the book really explores so many different examples. Can you explain a bit more about um, the other examples? Sure. Basically, the central metaphor I use is that international relations become a bit like a marriage uh, which goes wrong. So all of the things which bring a couple together in the good times become the ways that, that they used to hurt each other in the bad times. So it's custody of the children. It's who gets to keep their family pet, who gets the, the holiday home. And manipulating those ties is, is what happens when couples break up and they use them to hurt each other. But with globalization, what we're seeing is that there are many, many more ways to hurt each other. All the things which were meant to be creating one world and creating global harmony, like the internet, like infrastructure, roads, railways, pipelines, 5G networks, the movement of people, international institutions, they've all now been rethought as things which can be weaponized. You know, the Chinese, for example, when COVID struck, started blackmailing countries that were saying critical things about the Chinese government and saying that they wouldn't get access to PPE, to masks and vaccines. More recently, president of Belarus has been accused of encouraging Afghan migrants to go into European countries as a way of putting pressure on governments that were raising questions about Belarus's lack of democracy at the moment. So you're seeing that all of these different points of contact, which are very good and positive and have led to a lot of the economic advances, advances in our lifestyles in recent years, are now becoming risky as governments work out how they can use them to get political power, to get ahead themselves and to keep other people down. I was really fascinated by this part in the book in particular to learn more about migration and how it's being used as a tool or a weapon. And in the book, I believe you call it a currency of power, if you like. So the amazing academic work that's been done looking at ways that people have actually tried to weaponize migration. And there have been over 70 cases of this happening in the last few decades of governments and other players either forcing people out of their countries in order to achieve certain political goals or sometimes you have countries like Turkey that are kind of in between <laughs> and they use that as a way of extracting favours and it's a devastatingly effective weapon um, when they looked at how many of these attempts to weaponize migration to work, they found that they're much more successful than sanctions or wars advancing the objectives of the countries they're involved. And they're particularly good for weak countries. You can see how Mexico and Cuba can extract stuff from the US with demographic time bombs, but uh, they wouldn't be very successful if they tried to use real bombs against the United States, given the imbalance of power. Right. What I had a harder time understanding was, let's use the EU as an example. You know, when it comes to migration, geography isn't something that one can really change. So what options does the EU have when it comes to using Belarus as the example? Well, I, you know, there are lots of ways of managing borders which we've talked about a lot particularly since 2015. I mean my own feeling is that migration needs to be managed and you need the country 
to feel that it's managed because that gives the governments a license to operate. And if they don't feel that it's being managed, then they often go for extreme solutions and asking for walls to be built. And it's not just the walls are incredibly brutal and end up often hurting a lot of innocent people. They they also rarely work. In fact, in many ways, the building of walls encourages people to migrate. So the ideal thing is to have a set of policies which are humane, which are in line with um, our values, which allow people legally to go across borders, to have an effective bureaucracy to deal with all the different reasons that people would want to move, whether it's humanitarian, whether it's as economic migrants, and to have lots of different channels that are open and which can then be properly regulated and which people understand. And also to have good agreements with the transit countries which people go through with the countries that they come from originally and in the long term obviously to try and manage our relationships with different places so that they develop and so that people have got lots of opportunities in the countries they're born in as well as where they move to and i think that the european union needs to be aware of that and to take action in order to live up to its values but it doesn't open itself to that kind of blackmail Right. Easier said than done, I suppose. And another place where you could also perhaps say that is when it comes to China. And China plays a big role in the book. And here we also see within the EU a lot of differences between member countries and how they would like to approach their relationship with China. And then we take those differences within the bloc and then we think about it when it comes to the transatlantic relationship and the EU and the US trying to also come to some sort of mutual position on China. I'm curious how you see these dynamics sort of shifting in the coming years. So one of the big things which I try to get under the skin of in the book is how these different great powers are thinking about connectivity and about globalization because there's a huge debate going on in the US about decoupling and about how foreign policy can be made to work for the middle classes. In Europe, we're having these debates about strategic sovereignty and strategic autonomy and rethinking how we make globalization work for our citizens. And in China, there's a an even more fundamental debate going on about the idea of dual circulation, where Xi Jinping is kind of arguing that you shouldn't think about the Chinese economy as being a single economy. But there's a there are two kind of economies. There's one which is the internal economy, where China is, is protected from the rest of the world. And he wants to grow that and make China less reliant on others. And then there are the links which China has with the rest of the world. And he wants to change the way that that works so that other countries are more dependent on China than China is on them, so that uh, China can't be blackmailed by the US, but instead can use uh, the links it has with others to increase its own power. But they're also just fundamentally different philosophies around globalization, around connectivity. And I have a whole chapter which looks at how these ideas are increasingly clashing with each other. And, and that, in a way, makes this thesis so central because the big difference between America and China and that between America and the Soviet Union is that America and the Soviet Union were quite insulated from each other. But China and America are so closely bound together. And that means that the sorts of connectivity conflicts that I described, this era of unpeace, is unavoidable. You have two countries that are at each other's throats, that don't trust each other at all. And that is also particularly troubling for the European Union because it's not just a bilateral relationship. 
it's a triangle and um it is a very very different world to the one that we got used to which thought that globalization and interdependence would create harmony and would stop conflict because nowadays these are in fact the biggest battlegrounds that we're facing are you arguing that the european union should become more like the united states then and being able to then handle these sorts of challenges i think that by necessity we're having to introduce political and geopolitical elements into our economic decision making we had a foretaste of that with the whole debate about Nord Stream 2 where Germany said this is purely economic but many other countries felt that this was political as well and increasingly nothing is going to be purely economic or purely uh, political and we're going to have to find ways of thinking about these things differently and then we're going to need to find institutions for that can manage that. And that is a long way from the case in, in today's Europe. That maybe leads nicely into my next question, which is about a book that you wrote back in 2005, which you're well known for, Why Europe Will Run the 21st Century. And given the assessment that you've just given us there, I'm curious as to what your thinking is now as to how the European Union is doing. So this book, in a way, started as a a piece of therapy for me. I started writing it in 2016. I was very bruised by... Your current uh, book, you mean? This current book, The Age of Unpeace. Yeah, I was very bruised by what had happened in the British referendum on EU membership with Brexit. And then I saw Donald Trump elected in the US. And what I realized through those two quite big events was that many of the things that I loved and saw as making my life immeasurably better and giving me incredible opportunities that my forebears had never had, which I celebrated in my book, Why Europe Will Run the 21st Century, was seen totally differently by hundreds of millions of people in different places. And that the very things I saw as giving me an opportunity were seen as, as threats by others, making them vulnerable. And that a lot of these different types of connectivity that I so enjoyed had uh, a dark side, which at least a minority of people felt very, very uneasy about. And I think that the fact that so many people in Europe and America felt that about globalization is a real wake up call and led me to think again about connectivity and interdependence and to sort of understand how actually connecting people, the very process of connecting people in some ways makes these sorts of sentiments much more fundamental to our politics, to the way that people see themselves. And unless we recognize that and find ways of dealing with it, then these projects could end up actually imploding and self-destroying. And that's what sort of happened with Trump and Brexit. It makes me sort of think quite differently about both how to manage interdependence, how to make sure that we can keep the good bits, but to make the, the bad bits much less risky, how we can listen to people who feel that they've been left behind. And the European Union in that world that I've been describing has a lot of huge benefits. You know, if you think about a world where the biggest currency of power is connections, Europe is more connected than almost anywhere else. That potentially makes it more powerful, but also makes it more vulnerable. That's great. Mark Leonard, thank you very much for your time today. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks to Christina for bringing us that conversation. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. 
If you like the podcast, be sure to tell a friend. And remember that we're always keen to hear from new and long-time listeners. You can contact us directly by emailing us at podcast at politico.eu. Talking of long-time listeners, uh, Christina told me this week that I have now done 100 of these podcasts. So if you've been around for some of those, most of those, even all of those, thank you very much. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks this week also to Lucas Kotkamp and to executive producer Christina Gonzalez and to you for listening. <laughs>